Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We are going to start Hebrews chapter 9 today and take the first 10 verses. It's, it's a little bit of a continuation from where we left off last week with Hebrews 8 and talking about the tabernacle, the true tabernacle that's in heaven. And as Hebrews chapter 9 opens, it's going to describe physically some things about the tabernacle that we don't even see in the Old Testament. So it's going to be very, very interesting study today. And I'm going to pull a little bit of an audible. We're going, if you've got notes, we're going to start at slide six just for the sake of time. So we're not going to go through some of the introductory slides like we usually do. But just keep in mind as we continue to go through the book that the whole book of Hebrews is built on five warnings to the believer. And so we're, we, we've gone through three of them. We're in between the third and the fourth right now in chapter 9, where the Lord is really diving deep into this tabernacle and how it links to Jesus, and that the old law and the old, the old modern or the old way of worship had to be put away so that a new relationship with the Lord could be instituted. So those five warnings are there because Jesus is pleading with us to stay steadfast. That's the key of the whole book of Hebrews. It's not, it's nowhere in the book does even tell you how to get saved. The whole book is what to do after you're saved. And that is the, the amazing thing about studying this book is that it's, it is written for us today. If you are in Jesus, the book of Hebrews is a guidebook for you on how to stay steadfast in the Lord. And we've talked about this a ton, but it's because Jesus is going to set up a kingdom. You have a place in this kingdom. And as he said in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou has, that no man take thy crown. So you have something that you can lose that's not your salvation. That's the key. When you start to study this throughout the Bible, the inheritance of the believer is what's at stake. Once you are saved, you can never lose your salvation. He did it all. He paid for it. He did it on the cross on your behalf. You did nothing to earn it, and you can do nothing to lose it. The question is then, like the Ten Commandments says, do not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. What do you do once you take on his name? Don't take it in vain. So a couple nights ago on June the 30th, the Lord gave me this word, and I put a, I, that's why there's quotes at the bottom of the slide there. It was June the 30th, and he started talking to me a lot about this. He said, Jesus, very clearly, as clear as I'm speaking out loud right now, he said, Jesus is a wartime king. And we hear that phrase a lot about, well, he such and such is a wartime president, right? You hear that phrase a lot. You know, when I was growing up, Bush was a wartime president, like we talked about at the beginning during the first Gulf War. And 
but Jesus is a wartime king. And, the, and then the Lord went on to describe how the staging ground for the war that we see unfold in the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 4, verse 1 on, that staging ground is... And the, the battlefield is being staged. And although we don't see it, it's on, it's on the heavenly side, right? Those other six and a half dimensions we don't have access to physically right now. But it's being set. And there's going to come a time soon that the opportunity to get into the church, that door is going to close and we're going to go home with the sound of a trumpet from 1 Thessalonians 4. And all war literally will break out. So right now, Jesus is at war for you in your life, for your heart, for your mind, your soul, which is made up of your mind, will, and emotions. He is battling for you right now. He's at war for you, and soon he's going to be at war physically with the enemy on planet Earth. And so the time is short, and it's, it's drawing not near. And I just want to remind all of you that as we're going through Hebrews, the reason why this is so relevant to us is that we have got to stay steadfast in him and fight in this war with him and not give up. Don't succumb to the enemy, but to press on. So if you remember, we looked at these verses. It's not from chapter 9, but ahead in chapter 10 last time. Remember speaking of, of Jesus here. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So the Lord's speaking about the tabernacle, how the priest, the Levitical priesthood and the high priest, they never sat down. They were continuously working in the tabernacle because what they were doing could never take away sin. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, See, his work was completed, and from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. How do you make Satan and his enemies his footstool if he doesn't go to war? See, it doesn't happen. That's why Jesus is a wartime king, because there's coming a time from Psalms 2 that his enemies are made his footstool. He is going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and vanquish his enemies once and for all. And that, that, when you get that perspective, it should give you a sense of urgency on how to live for Jesus right now. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. See, you can be sanctified in him and have power over sin in your life. That's the key. He wants to go to war for you right now in the spirit so that you are victorious in your flesh. You don't have to be a slave anymore. Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his See, this is all over the Bible when you really study this. We, we so often think of Jesus as this suffering servant that washed our feet and died for us, and this, this humble, meek man, and indeed, he was all of that. But Jesus, there's another side to Jesus that you need to get to know. And that's as a warrior king, as a conquering king, as one that stands up and fights for you. As a kinsman redeemer, remember they have two roles. Once is, one role is the avenger of blood. 
The other one is the kinsman redeemer where he redeems you, which he did on the cross. But the other role is the, is the avenger of blood. And that's what the role that Jesus has not fully fulfilled yet from Isaiah 61 that he quotes in Luke 4. But he as the king is waiting for you to call on him as your high priest. And we've studied that a lot the last few weeks, how Jesus is your high priest. And once you give over and fully submit to him, he will take whatever you're battling off of you and give you that victory and really peace in your life that you don't have to be entangled in anything any longer. You have full independence because... Amazing. Okay, remember last time in Hebrews 8, we covered this. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So remember, his work was completed on the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so no Levitical priest could ever sit down without performing priestly duties. They had to continuously work. And his work in you is ongoing, perhaps. Um, it's ongoing in everybody, frankly. Myself included, we are all a work in progress, every one of us. And the question is, how fast do you allow that work to happen? Remember the children of Israel, their, their trail through the wilderness was to be about 11 days. But because of their faithlessness and denial of submitting to him, it turned into a 40-year wilderness roaming that didn't need to take place. And the whole time, the Lord is fighting for them, crying out to them, pleading with them. And it took them that long, finally, for that, the next generation to enter into the promised land. So there may be sin, right, that needs to be uprooted and personal issues that need to be fully submitted, but he is our king priest sitting in the heavens right now. And he's going to sit on the earth. And, and if you are in him from Revelation 19, we get to come back with him to set up that kingdom, which is amazing. There is a king priest waiting for you to run into the throne room and give whatever you have to him. Verse 2 from last time, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. So in verse 2, and this is really where the, the chapter 9 starts off today, the true tabernacle that was pitched is in heaven. The, the wilderness tabernacle that Moses and the children of Israel pitched was a shadow of the heavenly reality. It was a blueprint that the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave him the specifications, every, all, all the details in it, every artifact in it, what you had to wear in it, how you performed the priestly duties in it. All of that was a shadow of the heavenly reality. And when you realize that, we're going to look at this later on in the message, but when you realize that, it also makes some verses from Revelation come alive as we see these angels offering incense at an altar in heaven all of that is the true reality that Moses modeled. And so you have this war in heaven that is coming forth against the true sanctuary of God. It's like an attack from the enemy on the real home base, you know, so to speak. But Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Remember, that's why Israel thought that he couldn't be a priest because priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus took the law and turned it completely upside down 
And he is our high priest and he never walked into the Holy of Holies or the holy place for that matter of the temple that was standing when he walked on the earth. He was always in the outer courts. And so as a priest, he now has that role in the true tabernacle because the old one's put away. So to the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So many consider the law as the words in the first five books of Moses. It's called the Torah. If you're a Jew, you call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You call it the Torah or the Tanakh in some, some subsets of Judaism. But in the Torah, and, they, and a lot of them consider those first five books to be the law. But I want you to notice that in Hebrews, the Lord is viewing the law from the point of its place of worship and the priesthood associated with that place of worship. And that's, and that's critical to get because God is not saying, we'll shove aside the, first, aside the first five books of Moses. He's saying that place of worship and the priesthood that went with it is no longer necessary because we have a new place of worship. You get to run in, into the true tabernacle, the true throne room. You don't have to rely on the old tent that Moses was setting up in the wilderness. And so the Lord is going to take some time to describe that worldly sanctuary here in these first 10 verses, but it has to ultimately speak of Jesus. From Psalms 40, verse 7, Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. And that's Jesus speaking, in the volume of the book. And so the law and the tabernacle, it has to ultimately speak of Jesus. And you see this all throughout the New Testament in the Gospels when Jesus is walking the earth. I didn't add this verse, but remember Nathan and Philip ran and said, we have found the one whom Moses and the law wrote of. Okay, they knew that he was here to fulfill all of that. So Matthew 5, 17 and 18, think not that I come, this is Jesus speaking, that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, pass, one yacht or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. See, he came to fulfill the tabernacle, the law, everything that was written from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. He came to fulfill all of that, not to destroy it, but to complete it. And when you study that, there's a lot of things that he did fulfill his first time on planet Earth. And for every one of those verses that he fulfilled the first time, there are eight that he has yet to fulfill when he returns the second time. So think about that. Most of what Jesus has yet to fulfill is in our future. That's amazing to think about. There's more written about the 70th week of Daniel and that seven-year period that is forthcoming than any other period of time in the history of man. And he's got to fulfill all of that. Now, when you look at the five books of Moses, just a kind of a special insight here, but when you look at those five books and you spell the word Torah, when you go in Genesis and you find the first H and then you count on 49 letter intervals, it will spell Torah for, um, forward. I'm sorry, find the first Ta, T. Okay, it spells Torah forward. You go to Genesis, Exodus does the same thing. 
You go to T and you count on 49 letter intervals and it spells Torah, four words. In Leviticus, it doesn't happen. But then when you go to Numbers and Deuteronomy, it happens, but it happens backwards when you find the first H and it spells Torah backwards. So then you go to Leviticus right in the middle and it spells on the same thing on a seven letter interval, it spells Yahweh when you find the first Y, W, H. So Yahweh. So the Torah always points to God. And God has inscribed a lot of things in the very root of the text to let you know that it is authenticated from outside of our space-time, right? He's authenticated it, this message, that it truly is from him. And so when you have that perspective, it will make you read and appreciate the word of God so much more that you realize this was written by the divine creator of the universe, and it always speaks of Jesus somehow. And so don't take that for granted. Dive in and study it. So in verse 2 here, For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So remember, I've got a diagram at the very end of this, like we looked at last time. But there was the outer court. Then you got, when you, when you went in from the outside, you were in the outer court. Then you went inside the first veil and you were in the sanctuary. And then through the next veil was the Holy of Holies. And so in the sanctuary, the tent of meeting, it's called in the Old Testament a lot, there was the menorah and the, and the table and the showbread and an altar. And so the menorah, it's of solid gold and it's described in Exodus 25, 31 through 39 and Exodus 37, 17 through 24. Now remember, all of this speaks of Jesus, but that's why in John 8, 12, then spake Jesus again unto them and saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so he's laying claim to being that menorah. Now don't confuse the menorah with what you see at Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a different candlestick that the Jews use to celebrate the rededication of the temple. And so the, the Hanukkah, it's not the menorah. The Hanukkah is a 12-branch candlestick. It's different. The menorah is seven. And so, but that's what Jesus is laying claim to. I am the lie of the world. He's laying claim to that menorah. The table of showbread is described in Exodus 25, 23 through 30, and 37, 10 through 16. And again, Jesus is laying claim to that. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So remember, he is the bread of life. And they would set up, we've got these verses later, he would, they would set up the rows of the showbread in two rows of six loaves each. And so one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, there are actually 13 tribes but the Levites were not represented in the tabernacle. They had to serve it. And so on the ephod, everything, they're not there. Their inheritance was not land and property, so to speak, and towns. Their inheritance was in the Lord. But that's why Joseph has two sons in Egypt. When Jacob comes down, it's Manasseh and Ephraim. And when Jacob comes down from Israel during the famine and moves his family down there, he adopts those two sons as his own which is how you get 13 names to choose from. But God always refers to them as the 12 tribes. So in verse 3 here, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called 
the holiest of all. So in the Old Testament, really throughout the Bible, you hear the holy of holies called as the holy of holies, the holiest of all, the most holy place. Okay, those are just some names you'll see throughout the Bible for it. And the veil here, it's described in Exodus 26, 31 through 37, and 36, 35 through 38. Now, in the Holy of Holies, remember, only the high priest could enter through the second veil. And he could only enter after a lot of ceremonial preparation. It took a long time to get ready to do that. And only once per year on what the Jews call Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. That's the only day he could enter into the Holy of Holies. And he had to walk in with a basin of blood and to offer that blood. And we're going to look at why here a little bit later. But that's how limited, what I want you to realize is that's how limited the access was to God before Jesus died on the cross. You had to do so much work and preparation just to get an, a little bit of time in the most holy place. And you had to bring in blood and sprinkle it, and then you got to get out of there. You've got to leave quick before God's glory takes you out. And in Matthew 27, this is where when Jesus is dying, when he died on the cross, this is the veil that was torn from top to bottom. Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, I can imagine, and the rocks rent. So I don't know which rocks were torn apart when Jesus died on the cross, but that's pretty amazing, that literally rocks around the earth were ripped in half, and, and the earth quaked. Now, we know from the also, also in the gospel records that the sun was darkened, right, for a lot of hours. There was no way Pilate knew exactly who Jesus was. That's why when they want to seal the tomb after they take his body, he tells them, hey, go, you can hear the sarcasm, right? Hey, go ahead, make it as sure as you can. Guard it with every guard in the Roman army. I don't care what you do. This guy's not staying in there because he was the son of God. And that's exactly what you see from the geo, geological effects of him dying on the cross. But that veil, can you imagine being a Levitical priest? He dies on Passover. He's crucified. And you are in the temple preparing the lamb for sacrifice and getting ready to slaughter it. And you're standing in there and all of a sudden the veil just rips open. That you're not supposed to go in because you're not the high priest. Because it's not the day of atonement. And all of a sudden you're sitting there and it's, it's wide open and you can see in it for the first time maybe the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And you're sitting there going, oh man, am I about to die? I should not be looking on this. And, but Jesus opened it up. It's open house. So the access was open then. And so I, one of the things I want you to realize is the access they had to work so hard for, you get at any second of any day, Anytime you want, right now, you have that access to the most holy place in the throne room of God because of what Jesus did. So in verse 4, And the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. So now this is interesting. The golden censer, 
Nowhere in the Old Testament is the golden censer described as being within the Holy of Holies. And in fact, the only other place the golden censer is, is discussed is in Revelation 8.3. And remember, at this time, so Revelation 4.1, the rapture occurs. We are out of here as a church. We're in the throne room of heaven. Jesus comes forward as the lamb that was slain. He takes the scroll. He starts to unseal the sealed indictment on planet Earth and the judgments, and he goes to war on behalf of us and what he rightfully paid for, which is to redeem all of mankind and the earth. And during that time, you've got the seven seals. The seventh seal unfolds the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet unfolds the seven bowls, and then it climaxes with Jesus returning. And during that war, we see this so often. And look at Revelation 8, 3, and another angel came and stood at the altar. So in the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, God is sitting on a throne, and during this war, he's declaring, angels are coming and offering incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And, and so you wonder why the Lord depends so much on us praying. It's because he wants us engaged in the war. And when you start to pray, you are activating war in heaven. You are in the game. You are, when you pray on behalf of your children, 2 Chronicles 7.14, right? When you pray on behalf of our land as a nation, when my people, which are called by my name. But look at that in, in Revelation 8.3, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. You're getting a vision of the real tabernacle in heaven. And so what kind of priesthood are the angels operating in? I, I don't even know. That's a, it's not really described anywhere, but the angels are some, for some reason acting as a priest in some way by offering this incense on the altar, which is pretty amazing. But the true tabernacle is in heaven. And there were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. Manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, or what we refer to as the Ten Commandments. And so when you look at those three items, Aaron's rod budded as a confirmation that the priesthood was with his offspring, the Levites. The Ten Commandments which the Lord throughout the Bible calls the tables of the covenant or the testimony. We're going to talk about that in a little bit too because every one of those lines up with what he does for you, which is amazing. The manna though, the rules for collecting the manna, which was angel food, are in Exodus 16, 1 through 21. Now, to collect the manna, you had to go out on your own and kneel down and collect it daily for yourself. You couldn't send your spouse or your children to get it for you. And the whole thing is a model of our requirements to collect the word of God today, which is you've got to go study the word on your own and collect it for yourself. Don't rely on your spouse. Don't rely on your church. Don't rely on your, your children or, or some other teacher or pastor or someone. You have a responsibility to be in the word of God on your own and collecting the manna the bread of life, to feed yourself constantly. So you've got to do that every day. 
in verse 5. And remember, when they were doing that, they had to collect it. If they collected more than they needed for that day, it spoiled. And on the seventh day, they were, or the sixth day, they would collect twice as much so the seventh day they could rest. So take that serious. That's why Acts 17.11 says, study it daily. You've got to do this every day. In verse 5, And over at the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. So there's something special about the mercy seat that God wants to reveal, but even says, I can't speak about it right now. Now that, that should make you really bring up a lot of questions. What would the Lord like to show us with the mercy seat, but he doesn't want to speak about it yet? We may study that in a lot of detail next week. But the mercy seat, it's separate from the Ark of the Covenant. And the mercy seat was made out of solid gold. And it had cherubim and their wings would come together and form this, this seat, this platform. And it, the ark, remember the ark was made of wood, acacia wood, just like the crown of thorns that Jesus wore on his head. Really probably more like a helmet of thorns, not necessarily a crown. It probably was a full helmet that they pressed in the top of his skull. And it was the same wood that the bush, the burning bush that Moses saw in the wilderness. It was acacia wood. And so you could track down acacia wood throughout the Bible and find that. But the mercy seat, those are the verses in Exodus 25, 17 through 22, that it was above the ark. Remember, there are two separate things. It was the lid to the ark. It was not the ark itself. And so just keep that in mind. And because it's solid gold, it's, it's probably endured ever since then. So throughout the Bible, though, our king is described as the one who sits between the cherubim. And you can actually find this 12 times in the Bible. I didn't list all 12, but a few here. 1 Samuel 4, 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubim. If you see in the, in the King James Bible, the S on cherubims, it's just a, it's a mistake. An I-M ending is plural in Hebrew, so they didn't need the S. So cherubim. 2 Samuel 6.2, And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. See, they knew him as this all throughout the Bible the one that dwells between the cherubim. In 1 Chronicles 13, And David went up in all Israel to Bala, that is, which belonged to Judah, I'm going to pronounce that name of that town, to bring up thence the ark of God of the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubim. In Psalms 99.1, The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble, he sitteth between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. In Isaiah 37, verse 16, God, o God of Israel that dwellest between, there's a fly up here, that dwellest between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdom of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. So there's a few for you to get, to get an idea. There's actually 12 times it's listed. Now 12 is an interesting number, and we're going to look at this after we study Hebrews. 12 is always That's why you could study that kind of pretty far in the kingdom of disciples that are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes just on and on it's always 12 but Jesus will rule over the kingdom of heaven 
probably from the very seat that we were studying, the mercy seat. Blood was also to be sprinkled on and in front of the mercy seat. So when you look at this in Exodus 26, verse 34, and thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. He'd set it as the lid in the Leviticus 16, and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he died not. See, the, the high priest, even when he walked in to the most holy place, there had to be a cloud so that he didn't die. That's why he wore bell, bells around the bottom of his garment because if he didn't come out, they would not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. So he had to go in and he had to apply the blood on the sides of the mercy seat and in front of it. And Jesus, that's why when Jesus died, we learn that he applied his blood in the true tabernacle in Hebrews 9, verse 12, 23, and then throughout the rest of the Bible, it talks about that several spots. So Jesus had to go in once he was crucified he went into the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, and he applied his blood on that mercy seat once and for all, never to have to do it again. He never has to do that again. So as our high priest, that activity was completed for once and all on your behalf. So in verse 6, now when these things were, things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. So twice a day, the priest had to do this. They had to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, and they had to burn incense. That's all in Exodus 30, verses 7 and 8, at morning and evening. The menorah was tended to twice a day, and that's in Exodus 27, 20 through 21. The showbread had to be changed continually, and that's all in Leviticus 24, 5 through 8. See how they had to work constantly. That's what the Lord keeps hitting home. They had to work constantly. So the seven-branch lampstand, who is that now? When you think about who is the seven-branch lampstand right now, well, it's us. It's the church. The menorah is no more. The menorah has been put away. Those sacrifices are done. They don't have to tend to that anymore. So the seven-branch lampstand right now is us. So let's look at that in, in Revelation. In Revelation 1, verses 12 and 13, the seven golden candlesticks, and I turn, so remember in Revelation chapter 1, the Lord sees, gives John a vision of him in his resurrected, glorified body as the warrior king. That's all in Revelation 1. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with paps with a golden girdle. So he sees Jesus in the midst of this, these seven golden lampstands, just like the menorah. And you don't have to guess what it is. He tells you what it is in verse 20, a few verses down. 
the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So then he writes seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches and they complete the entire church because every piece of them you can find in churches all over the world today. And so those seven letters to the seven churches represent the entire body of Christ that's been formed for almost 2,000 years. And, but look at this. After the rapture happens, where are those seven golden lampstands? Before the tribulation starts in Revelation 4-5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. That's what's representing us, the church. We're in heaven before the tribulation begins. Even in that subtlety of the seven lampstands, you see that. So in verse 7 here, But into the second, when the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So the Holy Spirit's hitting home this limited access into the Holy of Holies. He could only enter once a year, and he had to have blood to offer. And his entrance in the Old Testament was for himself and for the people. See, Jesus did not enter in for himself. He entered only on behalf of all of us. He didn't have to do it for himself. The old high priest in the law did. And so the entire tabernacle model in the Old Testament, it never brought the people to God. They could never enter the Holy of Holies. It only showed them the need for a Redeemer to get to God. And that's what Jesus fulfilled on our behalf. So now you have that access. You have that access. So in verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. The access was limited both on earth and in heaven. So that access could not be obtained until Jesus was crucified. And that's why there had to be Abraham's bosom in existence before Jesus was crucified. And you, don't, you get this hint only in one spot in the entire Bible. It's in Luke 16. But the access to heaven was granted once the blood was applied after Jesus was crucified. That's why the, the Bible speaks of the bottomless pit in the center of the earth as this holding place before that. So it had two sides. When you study this biblically, it had two sides. It had Abraham's bosom for those that were in the Lord, and it had Hades for those that died and were not saved. And so you see this in Luke 16. It came to pass that the beggar died. So remember this in Luke 16, verse 22. So you had, you had a beggar and you had the rich man. And the beggar would sit in the gate all the time begging for food and the rich man never offered him anything, but he'd pass him by and just look at him every day. And you see this in Luke 16, verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, now this is a different Lazarus than the one that Jesus raised. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, 
and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said in verse 25, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. So get the picture. You have the rich man that's being tormented and Lazarus being taken care of. And beside all this, between us and you, this is Abraham speaking to this guy. In the afterlife, it's, it's, you get a lot out of this. There's a gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that they may testify unto them, lest they also come unto this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, they know everything they need from the Old Testament, how to get saved and to not end up in this place. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, it's, it's ironic that a, another Lazarus would rise from the dead and they wouldn't hear him. But Understand, you get a lot out of this event in Luke 16. There's Abraham's bosom, so if you were saved in the Old Testament and you, and you died, you were in Abraham's bosom. Well, you were taken care of. You had, you had water, you were, you were in a joyful place, you were being tended to. The other side, Hades, was where the bad guys were, those that were not saved in Jesus. They remembered what they needed to do. They knew what they needed to do to get saved. They had memories of their time on the earth. They had physical needs and desires. And so keep that in mind. It's a real place. Hell is a real place that you go to if you are not in Jesus. And that should give you urgency to get those that are not in him saved as quickly as possible. It's a real place. But after Jesus was crucified, Abraham's bosom then is emptied out. So you see this in Matthew 27, 50. This is the only place you see this in the Bible. And we, we covered a couple of these verses earlier. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, can you imagine? So Jesus died. He went and applied the blood of the mercy seat, the true mercy seat in heaven. And then all of those in Abraham's bosom that were waiting for that day were cleared out. They were resurrected and they went into Jerusalem and the city sees them. I mean, that's got to be an incredible testimony that they saw all of these old saints resurrected from the graves and then they all go up to heaven with Jesus. Now, the Old Testament saints don't have their resurrected bodies yet. They get those when Jesus arrives a second time. Our, at the church, we get our resurrected bodies at the rapture. So in the last two verses here, Hebrews 9 and 10, 9, 9 and 10, which was a figure for the time 
then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So there's only one who can purify and his name is Jesus. It's not a counselor, it's not a psychologist, it's not your spouse, it's not someone else in the church. It is Jesus. And that's why one of my favorite names for him from Isaiah 9-6, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That's the only place in the Bible that Jesus is referred to as the Counselor. The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of peace. So he is your counselor. And because he's the Prince of Peace, if you have any issues in your life tormenting you or the enemy trying to, to keep you enchained, he can break them. He is the counselor. He can sit with you and work through all of those issues and just take them away supernaturally. That's what he does. Your thought life, anything, take it all to him because he's the only one that can purge and purify and make clean your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. You are a triune being. You have a body. Within that body lives a spirit that is eternal, made in the image of God, and that body has a soul, your mind, will, and emotions. And your spirit, once you're born again, has the right over those mind, will, and emotions. Before you're saved, it's the reverse. You're, you're doing everything out of your emotions. You're acting out of anger. You're acting out of, think of all these different emotions that people act out of. You even hear them say it in the world, right? I just got so angry, I, and something happened. Road rage, whatever it is. <laughs> but he, once you get born again, the spirit then is put over your soul. And so then you let, you're led by the spirit, not by your emotions. And that's the key. So the tabernacle, God's way to be with his people. And we looked at this, this diagram last time, but remember everything that we just studied in the first 10 verses, it all speaks of Jesus. And that's why in John 1:14, the word Jesus was made flesh and tabernacled amongst us. In Hebrews 9:24, which we'll look at next time, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hand, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Remember, he's your mediator. So this study, when you look at the tabernacle, the whole thing, it models also your relationship with God. There was one door in and Jesus said, I am the door. You had to go in through him. And the whole tabernacle rested on those silver sockets, always speaking of blood, Levitically, because your opportunity to get into that relationship is on the blood of Jesus only. That's why they had to carry it on those poles with silver sockets. So it all rested on the blood of Jesus, and which is why when Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, right? He said, I betrayed innocent blood. Well, you get in, in Numbers 21, he is the brazen altar, the sin offering. That is Jesus. Brazen serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Then you get to the yourself continuously 
and you're getting rid of anything in your, in your past life, and then you start to get a little further into the holy place where there's the light, the menorah, where Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. There's the showbread where you're consuming the bread of life, Jesus. And then finally, you get further into that relationship to the holy of holies where you get the deepest relationship with God, where you're in the throne room sitting with him. The whole thing, it speaks of Jesus, but it also is a progression of your walk with him because you come in through him and ultimately your goal is to get inside the holy of holies in the throne room where you are relying on him for everything. And the tabernacle, remember the outside of it had all those dead animal skins and that's exactly what the relationship with Jesus is like because Isaiah 53 two. He, had no, he will have no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. And that tabernacle, there's nothing, when you would look at it in that time, there's nothing about it that you would desire. You would, you would in fact go, well, that seems like kind of a weird relationship. But once you got inside, it was the most beautiful thing you could see. The garments, the curtains, the gold, everything. So the time of the end is near, and Jesus is a wartime king. And the true tabernacle in heaven which is where he's sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is going to unleash war on the earth during the tribulation. And you see this, I just added in a couple of verses here where you can see how during that time, the true tabernacle in heaven, it's, it's, we are going to be in it with an altar and a throne room and a mercy seat that he's really sitting on. And the throne of God and this rainbow and there's rainbow needed to get in and there's no cloud to cover him because he paid for it so you can see him and you can be in his presence but in revelation 6 9 you see this the the tribulation saints are under the altar again it's a model they're under the altar crying for vengeance in revelation 8 3 we looked at that verse earlier that an angel with a golden censer coming to the altar revelation 8 5 he took the censer and filled it with the fire at the altar and cast it to the earth. And there are voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And war is breaking out that's rooted in this true tabernacle, the heavenly reality. In, verse, in chapter 9, verse 13 in Revelation, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So there's an altar before him in heaven. In Revelation eleven nineteen. And the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquakes and great hell. See, war is being poured out on the earth and the tabernacle, the true tabernacle in heaven is the source of it. It's all coming from his throne room. That's why we're going to be there sitting with him. And this war is described in Revelation 12 verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And what you see after that verse is that there was no more place found for them in heaven. See, Satan has access right now, but he eventually will lose it. That's why in Job, you see him going before God and accusing you and I night and day. He's just an accuser of the brethren. And when he goes in that throne room, he's accusing you you have your defense attorney, Jesus, defending you as the counselor, right? He's defending your case. No, 
Matt's not guilty of that anymore. I've paid for that. He's already, that's been taken care of and off the table. And there are only three things built on earth as designed by God. Noah's ark, the tabernacle and everything in it, and then the, and then the temple. So when you think about this, those three things, it, when I was doing this study and preparing for this, it kind of shocked me to realize how much Noah's ark is also linked to the tabernacle. The perimeter of the tabernacle equals are three, I guess, levels in Noah's ark, right? Just like there are three levels in the tabernacle. There's the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And, and shockingly, all of those actually model you as a triune being. There's three levels to you. Your body as the outer court, the holy place as your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, and the holy of holies as your spirit. And so we might, we might dig into this further next week. I, I figured we'd run out of time this week to really dive in and look at how Noah's Ark compares to it. But that's going to be an interesting study because Noah's Ark the fact that the length of it was the same as the perimeter, that God is just telling you, hinting at something deeper. So the next temple, if you don't know about this, this organization, the Temple Institute over in Jerusalem, so they are ready to rebuild. To rebuild. There are at least three places that we know that there has to be another temple standing during the seven-year tribulation. Because Daniel, Jesus, and Paul, through the Holy Spirit, all make reference to it. That there will be an, a holy of holies once again standing during the tribulation that at the midpoint the Antichrist goes in and desecrates. And so when you study the Temple Institute, they have the design and the floor plan of this next temple ready to go. They, all they need is about three months to build it. Now, I don't know if us as the church, if we will see it or not. I don't know. We may see it built. We may not see it built. But we know that part of the covenant to start the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year tribulation, part of that covenant that, it's, that starts that timer has to do with them sacrificing in the temple again, which is why at the midpoint, three and a half years in, the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies now, you should ask yourself, too, how does he do that? How does he go in and not die if he's not a high priest? Uh, that's, a, that's a deep study. So it tells he's probably not, probably not fully human, but the, just dig into that later. So, dig, so then the Temple Institute, they, are, they have rebuilt everything that will be inside the, tab, the new temple again. They have the priests trained. They've tracked them down through DNA sequencing to know who is from the tribe of Levi. And they have them trained. They have their garments fashioned again. They're training the high priests. These are just some pictures from their website. You can see of some of the artifacts. I didn't include a lot of them. But if you go on their website, you can see a lot of imagery. You can walk through a computer model that they have designed of the next temple. And that computer model will show you exactly what it's going to look like what the Antichrist is going to go inside of to desecrate. You can walk through it in a computer model. That is unbelievable. This is what they've redone the, the breastplate of the high priest. Notice that they've used 
uh, purple, white, and, or I'm sorry, blue, red, and purple uh, yarn with a little bit of white there. And all of that is symbolic. But on the breastplate of the high priest, there were 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes. And then they have this chain around their neck that hangs it. And then there's two um, stones on their shoulders also that they carry with it. And you, it's hard to read on the screen, but from the top, Hebrew always goes right to left. So the top right is Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob. The bottom left is Benjamin, the lastborn out of the house of Jacob. And when you look at this, it all has a meaning, right? From Psalms 40, verse 7, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. Well, even the breastplate of the high priest. Reuben means, behold, a son. That's what his name means. Benjamin means a son of my right hand. So literally the high priest is behold a son. I mean, the, the breastplate of the high priest, behold a son, the son of my right hand, is on each side of it, all speaking to Jesus. And anywhere in the Bible you see my right hand, God speaking of my right hand, that always speaks of Jesus. And red and blue and purple speaking of his humanity for red, his deity for blue, and his royalty for purple. And so even, even every facet that Jesus served is represented in that, in that way. So do not, if you go check out the Temple Institute and their website, do not donate to them. They are not Messianic Jews. They do not believe the gospel. They do not believe in Jesus. They think that they need to rebuild the temple to usher Jesus here the first time. So don't, don't, don't get sucked in on their website because they have things for donate, donate, donate all over the place. Don't do that. Uh, but it's interesting to go and look at. And they are, one of the last things they're waiting on to rebuild the temple is they need a red heifer. And in March of this year, they think they've got it. They think they finally have it. Levitically, a red heifer had to be without blemish. There could not be a single white hair on it. And last fall, I remember they, they had one born, and it was so close, but they found one white hair behind its ear, like in the back somewhere, that was very discreet. But because of that, it wasn't Levitically pure, and so they can't use it. But when they rebuild the temple, they need the red heifer to burn and to use the ashes to sanctify the temple and to dedicate it. And so that's how close they are. And they're just waiting on one guy to make a covenant to allow them to build it. And I don't know if that's the Antichrist that's going to make that covenant or if he's just going to affirm it. But when you see the, the war for the temple mount in Jerusalem, you know, and you think about the true temple in heaven, that, that spot is the most hotly contested piece of real estate on the entire planet, the temple mount in Jerusalem. And it's probably, if you were to unfold all those dimensions, I bet it sits right in the center, <laughs> right in the center where God's true throne room is, which is why Satan wants it so bad, why the enemy has attacked it forever. But when you see all of these things, just like Luke 21, right? What Jesus said, when you see all of these things begin to come to pass, look up for your redemption draws nigh. And that's what we should be doing as a church looking up because our redemption is going to draw nigh and we're going to go home soon. And so the time is so short. You, you've got to go and lean on a wartime king as Jesus to ride everything in your life and to take it off of you and to fight for you and your children. You've got to do that. 
And how do you do that? You do it by getting into the word of God and building your faith because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen from Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's important because without faith, it's impossible to please him from Hebrews 11.6. And the only way to get it is in Romans 10.17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you've got to go do it every day, just like collecting manna. Go out every single day. And when you study the volume of what they would collect from that manna from heaven, you would realize very quickly the easiest way to do that would be to get down on your knees to pick it up. And that's what you need to do when you're reading God's word. Get on your knees and praise him for it, that you get to consume it. Consume the word of God and run that you may obtain from 1 Corinthians 9. And so if you're, if you're here, if you're watching this, wherever you are, if you're watching this around the world, if you don't know Jesus as your king of kings, then get into the ark right now. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And it is that simple and easy to have eternal life. And like Jesus said, I will keep you in Revelation. I will keep you from the very time of trouble that is to come upon the entire earth. Not preserve you through it, not protect you during the tribulation, but keep you from the time of trouble. You get to be outside of time during that, that time that comes upon the earth. And that's why you're in the throne room of heaven. And so if you need anything, if you've got a, a prayer request, if you, if you have a praise report, we'd love to share those here. If you've got someone in your family that has a need, just reach out to us. That's our email address there. And thank you so much for joining us today. We'll close out in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you that all the things from Romans 15, everything that was written aforetime was written for our learning. And God, as we study the book of Hebrews and looking back at everything that you fulfilled in the Old Testament, I pray that you would illuminate, illuminate for all of us new ways that it completely speaks of you. Lord, from Proverbs 25 too, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing and an honor of kings to search out a matter. And Lord, we are searching and longing for you. So we thank you again for this time. Please be with us as we leave this place and let your, your word not return void. Let it go out to the ends of the earth through this, your church, Father, that you are in charge of. And we love you for it, Jesus. In your precious name we pray, amen.